Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he also cried out prior to that. Do you remember? In Gethsemane, in the garden, the night before he was crucified, he said to Peter, James, and John, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here. Watch with me. And then he went a little further and he fell on his face, the scripture tells us, and prayed out of that sorrowful soul, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So he cries out on the cross, he cries out in the garden, but prior to the garden, he also expresses similar feelings, you remember. As recorded in John chapter 12, after the events of Palm Sunday, some Greeks come seeking him. And Jesus understands these other nations coming to him at this moment of crisis are a foreshadowing of that crisis. Another indication the time is at hand. And Jesus says to the disciples, John 12, beginning in 27, Now is my soul troubled. As he will say in the garden, My soul is very sorrowful. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. For this purpose, to have his soul sorrowful, even literally, to death. For this purpose, he had come to that hour. For this purpose, he was born into the world. For this purpose, God, the second person of the Trinity, became man, lived a perfect life, died cruelly on the cross. Glorify your name. Jesus knew why he had been born. He knew God had a purpose. And that purpose included the details of what we read from Mark 15. Mocking, ridicule, beating, and a torturous death. And so Jesus cries out and he says, fulfill your word. Glorify your name. Do as you will. In effect, Jesus is saying, forsake me on the cross. And then he will quote Psalm 22 on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He knows the answer. He knows the answer. But he cries out in that pain. 
knew why he was born. Do you know why you were born? Do you know God's purpose for you? What if that purpose, like Jesus' purpose, includes pain and suffering? What if it includes mocking and ridicule? What if it includes loss and death? What's the equivalent for you and me of the statement, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? How can we cry out like that while crying out in faith, holding on to the solid hope that God is sovereign, that he is in control, that he loves us with an everlasting love, and that he never leaves us or forsakes us. What's the equivalent for you and me of now is my soul troubled for this purpose I have come to this hour, Father, glorify your name. Well, verses 73 to 96 of Psalm 119 give us the equivalent. Teach us how to cry out while holding on to that solid hope in God and in his word. In these three eight-verse stanzas, the psalmist leans on the truth that God made him for a purpose and that God will fulfill that purpose. The psalmist knows that God brings even afflictions into our lives to faithfully shape us as he intends. And then, like Jesus with all that knowledge, knowing these truths, in the second eight-verse stanza, the psalmist cries out in pain to God. These are cries of faith and cries of real, genuine pain. And then subsequently, in the third eight-verse stanza, the psalmist rests in God's revealed, firmly fixed truth. Everything happens by God's loving appointment. All things are his slaves. And in following him, we find comfort. We find joy. We find life. We find freedom as we fulfill our purpose of glorifying his name. So this section of Psalm 119 helps us to understand Jesus better and what he's saying as he cries out on the cross. And it helps us in our pain, in our suffering, to follow Jesus, to cry out like Jesus, and like Jesus, to rest in that solid hope. Now, the first three sermons on Psalm 119 over these last three weeks, we've considered individual verses or phrases. I've jumped around a lot in the 24 verses we've been looking at, paid little attention to the individual stanzas. Today, we're going to look at each stanza on its own. Each of the headings, the three headings of this sermon, have to do with one stanza. So, the stanza, verses 73 to 80, under the title, The Bottom Line Shaped by God. And then the stanza 81 to 88, 
the present pain, crying out, holding on. And then the stanza from 89 to 96, eternal security, your life-giving word stands fast. So first, the bottom line, shaped by God. The present pain, crying out, holding on. And then eternal security, your life-giving word stands fast. So first, the bottom line, shaped by God. Your hands have made and fashioned me. Verse 73. This is an echo of Genesis 1.26. God says, let us make man in our image. Same idea, same verb. Let us make man in our image. And then later in Deuteronomy, both verbs that we find in Psalm 119, verse 73, show up. Is not he your father who made you and established you? That verb translated established is translated as fashioned in Psalm 119, verse 73. God made you for that purpose of being his image bearer. How do you do that? Well, verse 73 continues, give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. That's how we show forth his image. By learning, applying, understanding, living out his commandments. And then verse 80, may my heart be blameless in your statutes, that I may not be put to shame. So we glorify God by following his instruction, his commandments, his statutes. We display his character by following after him. As one commentator says, obedience triggers the image of God in us so that we are what we were always meant to be. Obedience triggers the image of God in us so that we are image bearers, what, God, what we were always meant to be. So this obedience, this display of the image of God fulfills our purpose. And part of the way it fulfills that purpose is by having an impact on people around us. We see this in verses 74 and 79. Just note the structure here. We looked at 73 and 80. Now we're going one forward from the top, one back up from the bottom. 74 and 79. We're going to continue that through this stanza. 74 and 79. 74. Those who fear you shall see me, as I display your image, shall see me and rejoice because I have hoped in your word. Similarly, 79. Let those who fear you, same category of people, turn to me that they may know your testimonies. So God created you, he 
go through serious suffering and hold on to God. Or she knows and applies God's word so well. I want to be like that. She's showing me what a life devoted to God looks like. Beth and I had the opportunity last weekend to speak of a small group we were a part of out of Nairobi Baptist Church in the first half of the 1980s. And at that point in our lives, we learned so much from those who were more advanced in life, more advanced in the faith than ourselves. We were the youngest people in that small group, not such a small group, 20-some people. People from five or six different countries. Ranging in age, we were like 26, 27 at the time, on up to one couple in their 70s. And we saw them living out God's word in the middle of difficult circumstances in their lives. We learned about marriage. We learned about parenting. What does it mean to follow God in those spheres of life? And we both felt, I felt strongly, that's what I want to be like. That's what I want to be like. That's really living before God. That's knowing his word, loving his word, and then displaying God's word. God uses us. up more towards the middle of the stanza, verses 75 and 78, here the psalmist speaks of affliction that comes to us as we walk in God's paths. Verse 78, let the insolent or arrogant be put to shame because they have wronged me with falsehood. As for me, I will meditate on your precepts. That is, what they accuse me of is false. And so put them to shame, God. That is, make it clear that they are propagating falsehoods. That what they say about me is not true. Show that their lies are indeed lies. And, he's saying, I will meditate on your precepts. I'm not going to let their lies bother me now. You will take care of that, God. I'm going to meditate on your precepts. I'm not going to get all hung up over the lies they're telling about me. And 73 shows why he is not bothered by their lies. I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous. Now listen to this. That in faithfulness, you Okay? Put those two together. What's he saying? There are these people, arrogant ones, insolent ones, telling lies about him, and God's behind that. You have afflicted me in faithfulness. B, 
These people are doing what they want to do. They are sinning. And yet the sovereign God is in control. And he's using these afflictions, implemented by evil people, to accomplish his purposes in the lives of his people. To fashion them, to make them into the image bearers that he wants them to be. So when God afflicts us, he does it faithfully. Everything he does, he does in faithfulness. Faithfulness to his character, faithfulness to his plan, faithfulness to his purpose. And thus, as the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 8, God works all things together for the good of his people, for the good of those called according to his so there's great hope because we can know even the afflictions, the pains, the sorrows in our lives were orchestrated by a loving, sovereign Father. But the affliction still causes pain, great pain. Jesus really cried out in pain before the cross and on the cross. And so the center of the stanza, verses 76 and 77, which by the literary device the author is using are, are highlighted in this stanza. 76, let your steadfast love comfort me. Your steadfast love is going to comfort me, God. According to your promise to your servant or to your slave, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, your steadfast love is going to comfort me. I can't have any other comfort. Verse 77, your mercy is going to comfort me. Let your mercy come to me that I may live. I'm not living unless I have your mercy, for your law is my delight. That's a statement of active Dependence. Again, we talked about that two weeks ago. The psalmist is saying, I cannot walk in your ways. I cannot bear up under your afflictions without your mercy, without your love. But you promised me such love. You promised me such mercy. I hold on to that. And I delight in your commandments. I delight in who you reveal yourself to be in your word. So as we read from 2 Corinthians chapter 1, he is the father of mercies and the God of all comfort. And he comforts us in all our afflictions. Why? So that we can be his agents of comfort in comforting others in any affliction with the comfort that we have received from God. Thus he makes us, he fashions us to display his image in us. He enables us to walk in his paths, and thus he enables us to encourage, build up, and strengthen others. He even brings afflictions into our lives, sometimes through arrogant, insolent people. And then he comforts us so that we can give that same comfort 
to others. He showers us with steadfast love and mercy all the days of our lives, including those days that are filled with pain. Jesus knew this. Jesus lived this out. In the midst of the most severe trial any man has ever experienced, Jesus held on to this truth. So God has a purpose for you. He made you. He fashions you. Remember that. Lean on him to fulfill that purpose. He'll give you his steadfast love and mercy through Jesus. Second heading, second stanza. The present pain crying out, holding on. Verses 81 to 88 pick up on the affliction that's been mentioned in verses 75 and 78. This stanza includes the deepest expressions of pain in the entirety of Psalm 119. The psalmist knows the truths that he's just mentioned in verses 73 to 80. He knows he is shaped by God. He knows his role in God's plan to help others. He knows God is sovereign, working even the attacks of evil men for his purposes. He knows that God has promised him his steadfast love and mercy. And right now, like Jesus in the garden, like Jesus on the cross, the psalmist is in deep, serious pain. And how does he respond? How should we respond when we are overwhelmed with sorrow and pain? Well, the health, wealth, and prosperity non-gospel tells us, pray for the pain to end, pray for healing, pray for God to stifle your enemies, pray for God to give you assets, and it's going to happen. Just have enough faith. But is that what happened with Jesus? Is that what happened with the Apostle Paul? Is that what happens with the psalmist in Psalm 119? No. Jesus, the Apostle Paul, and this psalmist show us how to respond. We are to cry out to God in the midst of that pain. And we are to trust in his promise. Not a promise that he's going to relieve the pain now or next week. But a promise that there is a purpose behind all the suffering, and there is, he is going to fulfill that purpose in your life. A promise that his love and mercy will follow you all the days of your life, and you will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now, the structure in this stanza, verses 81 to 88, is a little different. Notice there is a rotation. The odd-numbered verses give a statement about present circumstances. The even-numbered verses include pleas to God, cries to God. Though they also include some statements of present circumstances in the first half of some of the even-numbered verses. So let's look at the psalmist's circumstances, as detailed in this stanza, and then his cries, his pleas. 
So the circumstances, verses 85, 86, 87, pick up on the idea of the insolent, arrogant attacking the psalmist from verse 78. 85, the insolent, the arrogant have dug pitfalls for me. 86, they persecute me with falsehood. 87, they have almost made an end of me on earth. But I have not forsaken your precepts. Think of that idea. They almost made an end of me. I feel like I can't hold on any longer. I'm at the end of all of my resources. I'm hanging on by my fingernails and my fingers are slipping. As Paul says in that same 2 Corinthians passage, you are so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despair of life itself. That's the idea. They have almost made an end of me on earth. Well, there's something we miss in the English translation here. That same verb translated almost made an end of me is used in verses 81 and 82. So three times in this stanza, this verb is used. It's only used one other time in all of Psalm 119. But it's translated very differently in 81 and 82. It's translated long for in verses 81 and 82. If we're trying to use the same translation, we would end up with 81 being, my soul is at an end for your salvation. 82, my eyes are at an end for your word. The idea of longing is a good rendering in English. It just misses that connection to verse 87. What does that mean? My soul is an end for your salvation. My soul longs for your salvation. They almost made an end of me on earth. Well, the illustration, the picture, the image that he gives in verse 83 helps us. I have become like a wineskin in the smoke. Remember, wineskins, they wouldn't have glass bottles that they put wine in, or cardboard boxes that they put wine in in those days, there would be an animal skin shaped and they put the wine in, but it had to be a fairly new wine skin as Jesus tells about in his parable. Right? If it was old and it was brittle, you put the wine in and as the wine continues to ferment, it's going to crack and the wine's going to be spilled, the wine skin's going to be destroyed. Well, a wine skin in the smoke that's been put in this hot room it's all dried out, cracks, it's not good for anything, right? And so that's the way the psalmist is feeling. My soul is at an end. I'm like a wineskin in the smoke. I can't do anything. I can't fulfill my purpose. So those are his circumstances. He's hurting, he's in pain. He feels like whatever God's purpose for him, he's not able to fulfill it. Well, what does he ask God for? How does he cry out? What are his pleas? Second half, 82. When will you comfort me? 84. 
How long must your servant endure? When will you judge those who persecute me? 86, very short. Help me. 88. In your steadfast love, give me life, that I may keep the testimonies of your mouth. You see, these are cries of faith. Cries out of great pain, but nevertheless, cries of faith. Cries of trust. Cries of active dependence. He's speaking to God of his problems, acknowledging that he belongs to God. That he is God's servant. And he's trusting, as verse 88 says, that true life comes from walking in his ways. He feels like he doesn't have life. He feels like his life is at an end. But give me life that I may keep the testimonies of your mouth. That's what life consists of, keeping the testimonies of your mouth, displaying your image, fulfilling my purpose of glorifying your name. So like Jesus, like the Apostle Paul, like this psalmist, we can be confident in him, confident in his promise, and cry out in pain. So we must know his word, we must trust his promise, and glorify him by crying out in the midst of suffering. So that's the darkest section of this entire Psalm 119. But the next stanza, the third stanza in today's text, has the psalmist continuing to cry out, but now meditating on the security we have forever as God's people. So the heading, Eternal Security, your life-giving word stands fast. Verse 89. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Verse 93 in Hebrew also begins with the word forever, but it doesn't sound so good in English when you read it that way, but let me try. Forever, I will not forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. And so those two forevers, 89 and 93, introduce the two major sections of this stanza. Verses 89 to 91 talk about God's sovereignty forever. Verse 92 is a transition and then verses 93 to 96, forever, how am I to live before a sovereign God? So first of all, let's look at 89 to 91. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. His word is never going to change. Time is not going to erode God's word. His word is never going to go 
out of style, out of fashion. His word is never going to become obsolete. As the book of Hebrews says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Thus, we must avoid the chronological snobbery, which is so prevalent in our society, thinking that what is newest is best. What is newest is always better than what was held previously. Then verse 90 focuses on human history. Verse 89 is about all things, your word stands fast. Verse 90, all of human history, God has been in control of. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. So there's talking about humanity, right? You've established the earth, or you have fashioned the earth, the same word used in verse 73. You have established the earth, and it stands fast. And then verse 91 is a comprehensive statement. By your appointment, they stand this day. For all things are your servants. All things are your slaves. All that happens, happens by God's appointment, by his plan. There's nothing outside of his control. All things are his servants. He governs everything. He is in control all that happens, says the Son. So that's that broad statement of his of God's sovereignty over all things, over humanity's history, over everything that happens. And then in verse 92, the psalmist personalizes this truth. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. God's law is what is controlling all things. And so, if I'm trying to rebel against God's law, I'm putting myself apart from the flow of God's purposes and God's plan. And therefore, I will perish in my affliction. But then 93 to 96, how do we live as his people in light of his sovereignty? Quickly, 93 to 95, and then I want to rest in 96 a bit more. 93, as we already read, for, forever they stand. So forever I will not forget your purposes. Your, pur your word gives me life. In 94, I am yours. Save me, for I have sought your precepts. 95, the enemies are still around. The wicked lie in wait to destroy me, but I consider your testimonies. And then 96, the first half in the ESV, I have seen a limit to all perfection. NET, I realize that everything has its limits. One commentator, I have seen that there is a limit to all that is finite. Those sound a little different from each other. What is he talking about? We're going to get there. The second half of the verse, ESV. But your commandment is exceedingly broad. What is he talking about? Recall verse 45. 
I shall walk in a wide place, for I have sought your precepts. We talk about that as an expression of freedom. I have sought your precepts, and so therefore, I can do all these things. I'm now free to follow. I'm free to love. I'm free to trust. Because I'm running in the path of his commandments. I think that's the idea here. God is sovereign over all things. His word stands fast. When we submit ourselves to him, submit ourselves to that word, when we delight in his commandments, then we have that freedom. We're in that wide, broad place. Like Jesus, like Paul, we have true life. We have true joy when we follow what James calls the perfect law, the law of liberty. So that's the idea. We have this sovereign God who controls all things. When we make his word our delight, then yes, there's still going to be sorrows. There's still going to be pain. There's still going to be enemies. We're still going to need to cry out for him to save us. freedom of the children of God to run in the way of his commandments. His word is sure. He gives us life. And we can follow that word through Jesus and thus be on the path of security and joy. Well, in conclusion, let's go back to John chapter 12. The Greeks have come. Jesus knows that this is another reminder that the end has come. He is going to suffer as was prophesied. Before saying what we quoted earlier, now is my soul troubled, Jesus says to his disciples, he says to us, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So says our Lord. So my friends, God created you for a purpose. He created you for a purpose to glorify his name. And when you serve Jesus, the Father will honor you, will glorify you as you glorify him, as you display his image. But God created us as seeds. Seeds that must fall into the earth in order to fulfill God's purpose. And that falling into the earth is painful. It's 
experience pains, trials, tragedies, suffering as we fall into the earth and die. And we rightly cry out in dependence on God when we experience such pain. But his word is firmly fixed in the heavens. His word endures to all generations. All of human history is under his control. And his promises hold, his promises to the entire church, and his promises to each one of us as individuals. When you die to false life, when you serve Jesus, he says, you will bear much fruit. You will comfort others. You will display God's image. You will show his character. And each one of us will do that in a different way. Each will have an impact on different people. And each will glorify him in a different way. According to his plan, you will fulfill God's purpose if you are in Jesus. As Jesus fulfilled God's purpose for him, as the Apostle Paul fulfilled God's purpose for him, so you will fulfill God's purpose for you if you confess that Jesus is Lord repent of your sin, lean on him as the sacrifice paying the penalty that you deserve for your sin and trust in him, trust in his word every day of your life. And then, as Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame, for the joy set before you, you will endure the struggles of this world, leaning on him, crying out to him, seeking his love and mercy, and knowing this is the path to freedom. This is the path to true life. This is the path to genuine fulfillment.